Well, good morning. Would you uh, join me in opening up our Bibles to Jonah chapter 3 this morning? It's page 775 on a blue pew Bible. Um, well, as Rachel just prayed, our fearless children's director is at the hospital right now getting starting the induction process, I guess, as we speak. You know, I, I, I texted her. I said, you know, it was six months ago today that I preached a sermon and Rochelle's water broke right after. <laughs> so I said, if, you know, AJ's pretty good with technology, we could probably set up a live stream and, you know, if we just, <laughs> this could help get things moving, but uh, she politely declined. Um, but we are praying for her, especially if you remember, she's been dealing with a lot of blood pressure issues leading up to this. That's why they're inducing her early. So uh, definitely pray for Megan as well as the baby following uh, the birth this morning. They'll be monitoring, monitoring her closely. Um, and then now she begins a maternity leave, and we want to give her three months. And we just want to say, we don't want to, we would love to see you, but we don't want to see you from a work standpoint. We don't have any expectations upon her, really just have this time off as she welcomes their third child into the family. Um, and so part of that is for this summer, uh, we have some different people, some very faithful volunteers that are trying to just step into the space that she leads in so well. Uh, and, and throughout just our nursery and kids' worship uh, ministry. And how we do kids' worship in the summer, you, if you've been here, you might recall, for July and August, uh, we uh, really give our teams who do a month-by-month basis all for July and August. And so what we do is we have a list and we just ask for volunteers to come in and fill in those weeks. Uh, it's not the first week of July, not the first week in August, but every other week in those months we try and fill. And so um, all of the materials by Megan have been prepped beforehand. It really is just kind of step in and, and, and lead and facilitate uh, our kids' worship program. Uh, we'd love if you'd be willing to just do a week, uh, maybe two weeks throughout the summer. You can go to Grace Connect, indicate which dates would be available, or be on the lookout for some just emails. We'll kind of get some things going. And really, it's pretty simple how we approach it. If we have the amount of volunteers, uh, we have kids worship that week. If we don't have the amount of volunteers we need, we just don't have kids worship that week, and uh, they'll be in here with us. And so um, we just ask if you consider that in the days ahead to be able to sign up for at least one of those weeks and help those who are stepping in Megan's place to make their lives a little bit easier. Um, Well, we are in the midst of a sermon series uh, going through, verse by verse, uh, the book of Jonah. It's this story of a rebellious prophet and a relentless God. And uh, if you were here at the very beginning, I said that the reason why I really want to go through this this little prophetic book is while uh, most people, if not many, I'd say if not most, are familiar with the story of Jonah. It's usually a fan favorite if you remember anything about the Bible, usually Jonah is in there near the top. And, um, and yet, many, if not most people, know very little about the book of Jonah. And it kind of fits in line with what we call kind of our headline culture, if you know what I mean by that. We, we read the headlines, we don't usually read the articles. You know, have you ever been in a situation like that where somebody asks you, hey, did you see this article or did you see this blog? And, and, we, and we, we recognize, we remember reading the headline. I'll be like, yeah, yeah, I saw that, but... Mm, I saw the headline. I didn't actually read the article, and we generally make judgments on stories based upon what the headline says. Um, knowing, if, if you do know anything about journalism, usually the person who wrote the article never writes the headline, right? The, the headline goes to somebody else to try and get clicks and to get people to read it, something kind of striking, something that's really going to pull you in. Um, and, and the article a lot of times does not really reflect the headline. But for Jonah, I, I was kind of thinking about that. Many of us know the headline of Jonah, but... 
wanting to dig in deep here and understand what's the article say, so to speak. And I think we have found, it's been encouraging hearing some feedback of, of people saying, you know what, I, I don't think I've actually read Jonah. Like I, I've kind of like always been around it. I don't think I've actually read it. And it's been um, instructive to us, not only in a narrative sense, but also pointing us to Christ in every element of it, right? And so when we go to the Old Testament and we preach the Old Testament, ultimately we want to show how that passage points us to Christ. It enriches your Bible reading if you go to the Old Testament, not just wondering what's it saying here, but what's to say about Jesus? How does this point us to Jesus? It will make it much more exciting, much more deepening and enriching in your Bible reading when you go into the um, Old Testament with that mindset. But um, we have seen it speak into our lives, and I hope we will continue to see that this morning as we dig into chapter 3. Uh, because coming off chapter 2, which we looked at last week, Jonah experienced this dramatic turning point. He experienced grace upon grace from, from God as he was saving, um, as he was drowning in the ocean. God saved him in the form of a great fish, and it led to this prayer, this beautiful prayer we saw last week that was this recommitment to the Lord. And, and so Jonah is an example of what we might consider a believer who has drifted from the Lord, and God turned the lights on in their life to bring them back, where they recommit themselves. Uh, someone who drifted from the faith, maybe slowly over a number of years, they just realized, you know what, I'm just not really into this anymore. Or something shocking happened in their life that made them question everything, or it was just a, going down a path of a sinful desire that they just have gone head steam in. It's, it's, it's any form of these things that lead to kind of active disobedience, and God, in his grace, turned the lights on in the lives of his believers. And Jonah renewed his vows at the end of chapter 2. Now, Jonah has not arrived by any means. He's not just now all of a sudden no struggles at all. In fact, his struggles are not even done in the book of Jonah, which we will see in the next couple of chapters. But at this point, he has recommitted himself to the Lord. He ends up back on shore. And then that's where we pick it up in chapter 3. We're going to walk through this chapter. It's short, uh, but we're going to unpack it a few verses at a time. We'll start with the first three verses. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. First movement we see in this chapter is Jonah's second chance. Our God is a God of second chances. You read it right at the outset. So God came to Jonah a second time, and the same command he gave him at first, arise, go to Nineveh, and call out against it, the message that I tell you. The first time we saw, chapter 1, Jonah arose, and he went to Joppa. It's a city in the direct opposite direction from Nineveh, in complete rebellion to the word of the Lord. And now, a second time, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. And this gives us this picture of two paths in this world. There is a life lived in rebellion to the word of the Lord, and there's a life lived according to the word of the Lord. 
and we stand at those crossroads every single day. But people in general, I think you would agree, love the idea of second chances, don't we? Like, you look at all kinds of movies, all different kinds of genres, there's this kind of sub-theme of a character in the story getting a second chance. Because every good movie includes some, uh, a plot with some adversity, some failure, some, some brokenness, and then, throughout the course of a two-hour film, redemption and victory. Man, we all love a good comeback story. And we especially appreciate when we get a second chance. And this can go from the realm of kind of unimportant and silly to as deep and emotional as it gets. It could be a coach who gives his player another chance to play despite poor performance. It could be a teacher who gives a student another chance despite failing a test. It could be a boss giving their employer another chance to work after a bad review or a boss hiring you despite seeing how much of a train wreck your resume has looked. It could be a spouse who gives another chance to their loved one after breaking a vow. It could be a friend who gives a second chance after gossiping about them to others. We love when we get second chances. The reality is we don't always love when somebody else gets a second chance, um, which will also apply to Jonah, and we'll see that next week. But here's the thing about second chances. Think about second chances with me. Um, Here's the thing about them. We don't control them. We cannot honestly, with any integrity, go into a situation and say, it's okay if this doesn't work out because I will definitely get a second chance. Usually that's not the case. We don't get to decide that. Someone outside of us, in any of those examples, or many more, gets to decide that. Which means this, if you peel the onion back of second chances, they are all a product of grace. You don't deserve it, but you get it anyway. That's grace. Someone believes in you. Someone gives you another shot. It's, it's undeserved favor. And, and, and being on the receiving end of true grace, if you really recognize it as grace, it does something within you, doesn't it? It stirs something up. These feelings of gratitude, it, it, it empowers you to say, I'm not going to let this go pass me by. I'm going to take advantage of this second chance. And not only that, but then it also hopefully stirs in us a desire to say, I want to pay this forward. I want to give someone else a second chance. And and this is the rhythm of grace. When when you receive and recognize it as really grace, you become a giver of grace. And if you do not give grace in your life, that might expose the fact that you don't really understand that you first received grace. This is why Christians in particular, wherever it is possible, wherever it is safe to do so, we should always have our head on a swivel looking to give second chances. And I wonder if there's someone in here this morning who's at a crossroads of a decision that you need to make this week. Do you give this person a second chance? And I would just encourage you, not even knowing maybe the whole situation, to do it. If it's possible and it's safe to do so, be a giver of second chances because grace was a gift for you and it can now be a gift for someone else that empowers them. So if you're wondering, the answer is yes. 
Our God is a God of second chances. And he is always in pursuit. And he's always wanting and willing his people to believe in and follow him. And, and by God's grace, I think some of you would say amen along with me to this. It usually doesn't even stop with a second chance. It's a third chance and a fourth chance and a fifth chance and ongoing. And if you're still here, I would just tell you, no matter how many chances you think you've had, you're still here for a reason. And God is still pursuing you. And there's another chance. And with Jonah in particular, what we get to see, I just want to take a couple minutes to point this out. We, we get to see this really um, awesome display of what I would call grace-fueled obedience from Jonah. Grace-fueled obedience. So, I mean, just, just consider what we've seen in the last couple weeks. Jonah was willing to die in disobedience and get thrown into the water and drown because he did not want to see Nineveh saved. That's how much he hated them. And yet he was, once he hit the water, something changed in him. He cried out to God and he received grace. God preserved his life. And now, as a result of that grace, Jonah obeys. Obedience is not the reason why God saves you. It's the result of God saving you. That's unbelievably important because I, I don't think there's anything that's more misunderstood in Christianity as a whole, then what does the role of obedience play in the Christian life? Somebody asked you that question. What does the role of obedience play in the Christian life? I think there's two ditches on the side of the road that we tend, they're kind of the opposite of one another, but they tend to be the most prevalent. And a lot of times we switch from one ditch to the next. Um, here are the two ditches to avoid. Is one, the thought that obedience gets me saved. It's this idol of religion, and it's so kind of inbred in our mindset of, if I do these things, God will be happy, and if I do these things, God will save me, and so that leads to all this kind of um, embodied action. We get baptized whenever church we think we should be getting baptized in. We attend church just enough of the times to keep God happy, and we think, what's that number in my head? We do all the big things, and again, based on your background and tradition, maybe you call those sacraments, maybe you call those traditions, whatever you call them, you have this set of things of, if I do these things, if I obey here, God will save me. And that is not true. That is anti-gospel. And then, so that's one ditch we have to avoid. Let me tell you the other ditch. I might even venture to say this is the ditch. Once we're in, in the church, like Grace Church, we might be more prone to fall into. Follow with me here. The other ditch is to say obedience is merely optional. You know, it doesn't really matter if we obey God's word because grace. God's grace is going to save us. Jesus died for us. It's not anything I've done. And we take that to a place where we convince ourselves, I don't have to obey here. God doesn't really care that much about obedience. I am grace alone, faith alone. I'm a good Protestant. And then what that does is that justifies some things in our life. We can just live the way we want to live. No one could come to me and say, you ought to do anything, because I don't ought to do anything. Jesus saved me. And it's this real kind of place of I can just live the way I want to live and not need to obey. And let me tell you, that is not true. That is anti-gospel. Okay, so if you're following with me, you're like, okay, obedience does not force God's hand on the one side. Obedience does not, is not optional on the other side. Where does that leave us? And I tell you, that's exactly, it leaves us exactly where the Bible places it. On the road of grace-fueled obedience. 
God saves us by his grace through faith and then equips us and enables us by his Holy Spirit to obey. And we obey his word as a result of being saved. And it's gratitude and it's from our desire. Just as a man who truly loves his wife does not find it difficult to be faithful to her, so a believer who truly loves his Savior does not find it difficult to be faithful to him. That's why John says in 1 John 5, 3, verse will be on the screen. He, he, in 1 John, he gives a lot of evidence. How do I know I'm saved? That's a question for John is after in the book of 1 John. He says, for this is the love of God. You want to love God? You want to show you love God? How do you show him that? For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. I wish I could unpack that more. Not burdensome doesn't mean it's just easy. If it's not easy for you, you're not doing it right. It means that he supplies you the strength you need. Obedience is God's love language. And he gives us the strength and faith we need to obey. He supplies that which he calls us to. Um, there's a woman, very, not very well known at all, uh, lived in the 1700s in England. Her name was Mary Fletcher. And she was saved during the rise of the Methodist movement. If you know the origins of the Methodist movement with John Wesley, Charles Wesley in the 18th century. And she found that she was kind of a gifted teacher of the Bible. And all kinds of people freaked out about that. Especially men. Because God forbid a woman have a gift of teaching the Bible. And so there was all kinds of pushback. And, and, and if you just kind of read a little bit of her story, like she just lovingly didn't care. And she persevered in her teaching, especially she found just these lanes to teach and equip other women. And she wrote a letter, don't ask me how I came across this, in 1766 to a society of single women, because apparently that was a thing back then. And she entitled a letter called Jesus Altogether Lovely. And I came across this exhortation from Mary Fletcher that stuck with me. I think I, yeah, I have it on the screen. Follow along. She says, to you who have kept the faith, she's talking to the church, she's talking to believers, it will not be grievous to say, study obedience as the rule of your life. Obedience to God and to man for his sake. But what is this obedience we owe to God? Absolute and entire in small as well as great things, look at this, and because it is in the little things we are most apt to offend. When we think about obedience in the role of the Christian life, we tend to think about the big things. Am I obeying the big things? The big, the big public things, the big public kind of uh, sins that people would see, and we try to avoid those. But what Mary Fletcher kind of zeroes in on and says, listen, it's often in the little things that nobody else sees, that we tend to overlook the most. And if we're faithful in the little things, we will find it much easier to be faithful in the big things. But obedience does not come easy. It's not just wake up and I'm just going to obey the Lord and nothing's going to be hard about that. But we can obey God's word because of God's grace that was shown to us. This is grace-fueled obedience. And it's on that pathway where we will experience true joy in this world. It's not easy, but it's good. So there's Jonah's second chance. Let's keep going. Let's read verse 4. What's he do about it? 
Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. All right, what just happened there? We saw Jonah's second chance. Now second, we see God's stern message come through an obedient Jonah. The underlying irony in this whole book of Jonah is that it's part of the 12 minor prophets. It's a prophetic book. And yet in the entire book, there's only eight words of actual prophecy. And they just read them right here, right? It's because Jonah is more about the messenger than it is about the message. But the message is still here. He preaches, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's eight words in our translation. That's actually only five words in the original Hebrew. In all likelihood, it's not the only thing Jonah said. He went a day's journey. It's a big city throughout Nineveh. So I'm sure he was preaching this over and over again. There are hundreds of thousands of people who lived in Nineveh. So it's not the only words he said, but this is kind of the, the thesis, right? This is the, this is the line that captures the entire message. Everything he said can be summed up in these eight words. Um, when I began to preach, I'm right, still kind of at the starting gate here a few years in, uh, my dad gave me some really good advice when it came to preaching. He's been preaching now about 40 years. And he said to me at the beginning, he said, Aaron, you should be able to sum up your entire sermon in one sentence. You know what's hard? Summing up your entire sermon in one sentence. I want like 10 sentences and then sub-sentences to those sentences. But he said, no, you have to fight for clarity. It's the hardest part of preaching. And I think that extends beyond preaching. If you're in any situation where you're giving a presentation, maybe you're writing a thesis paper, maybe you're doing some kind of long-form presentation to a group of people, you're trying to persuade them or convince them or encourage them in something, you should be able to boil down your talk into one sentence. What do you want people to walk away with? And so Jonah's one sentence, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And you might hear that and go, a little harsh. Never seems to speak of God's grace there. No mention of his mercy, his love. Doesn't really seem like an effective message. And, and to that, I would, I, I would say yes and no. How about, how about that for an answer? Because it is true that Jonah seems kind of one-sided. Although God did say in chapter 1, go to Nineveh and call out against it. That's what he's doing. Um, he's implying that there's a special kind of judgment guaranteed that's coming to Nineveh. And Jonah seems pretty excited to share this message. It does not seem too difficult for him. He explicitly just says, 40 days, time is ticking, God's coming. And the reason is, and we find this in more clarity next week, Jonah does not want anybody to repent because of how evil this city of Nineveh has been known to be. So in that sense, yes, I would agree. He does seem to really limit the talk of God's grace in his proclamation. But in another sense, Jonah gives a very clear and stern warning, and a message of grace is implied in every good warning. I spoke a little bit about this in week one with the snakes and the golf, and don't even ask, um, but a good warning in your life is a means of grace because it forces you to change course or else you're in trouble. A good warning sign on the side of the road wants you to do something or else you're in trouble. 
even smaller scale if we went down the hall into the two-year-old nursery and the volunteer in that nursery dedicating their time saw my daughter Brinley steal a toy from another kid. This is a very true illustration. <laughs> and if that volunteer went to Brinley and said, Bryn, you got to give that toy back to Billy or else there's no snack for you. That's a warning. If Brinley listens and she gives the toys back, she will receive mercy and she'll get her goldfish. (laughs) If she doesn't, not only will she not end up with a toy, but then she'll also miss out on the goldfish. A warning is a means of grace wherever you see it. And it's based upon what's going to happen. The judgment is based upon the response. So did did Jonah shortchange the message a little bit? Did he emphasize more bad news than good news because of his own ill will? Yeah, probably. But is the good news of God's grace still implied in the message? I think so. You know, if you were to compare this to evangelism today, we kind of tend to do the opposite of Jonah. Jonah emphasized God's judgment and whispered about his love. We, in a desire to win people over, shout about God's love, and we tend to whisper about his judgment. And it's basically out of fear. And the reality is, an effective message requires and emphasizes both. So so next week, just kind of looking ahead, we're going to finish Jonah, Lord willing. For the two Sundays after that, I'm going to do a two-week series on evangelism on evangelism based upon the things we've seen in Jonah. So a little bit of a sneak preview, either come or don't come, whether that interests you, um, you should come. Um, And here's why, because the church today needs to recapture the joyful burden of evangelism. The joyful burden of evangelism. But if we really want to put ourselves in Jonah's shoes, if we want to make this apples to apples, do not think of yourself sharing the gospel with your friends and family. Think about you getting into a situation where you need to share it to a terrorist group who had a part in killing American lives. Something tells me we would not have too hard of a time talking about God's judgment in that situation. Well, was Jonah effective? Seems a little bit of a truncated gospel presentation. Was he effective? Let's see what happens. Let's read the rest of the chapter, verses 5 through 10. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. We saw Jonah's second chance, we saw God's stern message, and then third, we see Nineveh's shocking response. 
Amazingly, even with a less than full rounded message, God uses Jonah to bring about a positive and shocking response from Nineveh. And we saw it right at the beginning. They believed God. It's this great connection to the vinyl verse of chapter 2 that we saw last week when Jonah proclaimed, salvation belongs to the Lord. Like, yes, it does. And the Lord's sovereignty again looms large in the response of the people of Nineveh. I mean, just try and picture it. It's almost impossible to do so, but just try and picture this in your mind. The capital of the most powerful empire in the world all just responded to a message of judgment from a single man who hails from an outside nation, a nation that is nowhere near as powerful as yours. You can try to explain it, but you can't. And all it does is lead you to a place to just say, salvation belongs to the Lord. You know, I love hearing just uh, different people's stories of salvation, stories of how, different, how God just used different ways to bring people to himself. And have you been in a situation, maybe this is your story personally, but maybe you heard a story of somebody else and everything they went through, all the brokenness in their life, all the hard trials, and you thought to yourself, maybe you said it out loud, maybe you thought in your mind, how is this person a Christian? It, it defies logic. All that suffering, like how, how did they actually believe this is true? And it kind of gets you to this place to just put up your hands and go, salvation really does just belong to the Lord and his grace. And you can't always explain it. You just can just give him praise and glory to his name for drawing people to himself. There was one commentator who I think rightly pointed out that when everyone talks about Jonah, they always talk about the miracle of Jonah in the whale. Cool miracle. But it pales in comparison to the far bigger miracle of an entire city responding the way Nineveh did. Nowhere in your Bible except for here do we see as widespread of a response that we saw in Nineveh. And they responded from the greatest to the least in humility. They put on sackcloth and began fasting and sat in ashes. Those are all ancient signs of lament, of repentance and humility. And, and the word even gets to the king, the king of Nineveh. And we're carefully told with some detail what he did, that he stepped off his throne. He took off his robe. He denied his kingship in order to become one of the people and join them in wearing sackcloth. Does that picture remind you of anything? that ring a bell? Let me read for you a passage in Philippians chapter 2. Maybe this episode in Jonah, he's so careful to show it because it foreshadows this. This is Paul talking to a church. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. A king stepping off the throne. A king being one of the people he has come to bear witness to. So what happens when you read the Old Testament backwards meaning you read it in light of Jesus Christ, man, it pops off the page. It gives us an opportunity in small pockets to just worship and glorify 
him all over the place. But then the king's decree, it it tells us something. He, He says, let everyone turn from evil and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? Love that question. He's like, who knows? I don't know. You don't know. Who knows? God may just relent from his fierce anger so that we might not perish. But he's very clear on his command. He says, turn from evil and violence. Um, I I very briefly spoke about, when we started this, the evil that was present in the city of Nineveh. And that it was prominently known to be not just powerful, but unbelievably harsh and violent. And they systematically enslaved and humiliated those they conquered, but they also brutally treated one another. And there was all kinds of social injustices at every realm. And we don't just know this from the Bible. There are other prophets that speak against Nineveh. We know this more from historical sources at the time. Nineveh was brutal, man. The Assyrian Empire was just downright brutal to one another. Ultimately, was their downfall. But remember, one of the purposes of the prophets in general is to raise the standard of moral living. And with all this social injustice, economically, from an ethnicity standpoint, just widespread prejudice happening in Nineveh, one of God's problems with them was the moral decay in their culture. And these same warnings went within Israel. Prophets at the same time as Jonah were talking to Israel about some of the same stuff, some of the same injustices happening. But now this is also being spoken to about in Nineveh. And so um, this should not come as a shock to us, but God cares about how human beings treat one another. And, and I'm, this is just something I've just been thinking about, praying about more and more, just the reality that we are embodied people, not just souls. And God's created that. And Jesus even took on flesh himself. He took on a body. And so while the primary message that we need to proclaim is of faith and repentance, the, the, the message of biblical justice happening within our church, outside our church, in the area where we live, should be very closely connected to our gospel. It's why Jesus himself, he came to proclaim the gospel, but he also came to heal. We saw all throughout the gospel of Mark. He came to call out the immorality of the Pharisees. He came out to drive out evil from people in towns. And and so a gospel that is faithfully proclaimed by a church in 2019 in Ridgewood, it cares about the message, but you know what? It cares about people. It works for justice in the areas in which it is proclaimed. And we do this in little ways. And and I've said this before, but no one church can do everything. It's overwhelming. But every church can do something. Right? Even the lighthouse baby shower today downstairs. Just hopefully a little example of how can we step into the space to support organizations that are for life in our area. And support that and work for that. Not knowing, is it going to make a huge difference? I don't know. What's, what, what, what's this country look like in five years? Don't know. But I know that we can play our part and trust God with the results. And a culture just changing its behavior does not equate to salvation. We know that. But it does align itself to God's design for the flourishing of mankind. You know, any kind of evil, any kind of injustice is ultimately self-destructive. You give it time and it will implode on itself. The best example we just know in this country is slavery and the Civil War. 
you let evil and, and, and injustice go unchecked, eventually it will implode upon itself. And the king understood this. And so when he heard the message from Jonah, he knew exactly what God was calling them to do. And he calls his own country to turn from their evil ways, to repent. And he leads the way as this whole city does so. And, and so God sees this and he relents from the disaster that was coming upon them. And one might look at this and say, hey, God just changed his mind. You see that? He, wanted, he waited to see what would happen and go, oh, wow, they actually repented. Look at that. Oh, I guess I'll cancel this destruction plan. And, and I think that there's a sense where people think that's how God works. That God kind of just changes his mind based upon how we behave. But the Bible in no way presents God in that way. God is immutable. That's, that's a big word. It's an important word. Immutable. And that simply means God is unchanging. He's the same yesterday and today and forevermore. Um, Eric Redman, he's a professor, a theologian. Um, he talks about God's immutability this way. It's my favorite quote on it. And I have it on the screen. Write it down. Take a picture. He says this, God does not change. God is who he is and always has been who he is and forever he will be who he is and always has been. That's important. That is something you can cling to when the world falls apart. Everything else will fall apart at one point or another. God alone is unchangeable. So God did not change his mind, but he knew it was a warning of judgment that would be the means of grace that the city of Nineveh needed to turn from their evil ways. Which is why he was so relentless after Jonah, because this is the message that saves. This is a story of second chances. A story of God's grace. Who it goes to. How it comes. What it does to those who receive it. And God gave a second chance to Jonah. And then God gave a second chance through Jonah to Nineveh. And grace always manifests itself differently. There's all different paths through which it, he draws people in and grace goes out. For Jonah, it was at the bottom of the ocean. For Nineveh, it was a message of judgment, a warning of judgment. So it comes in many ways, but it comes from one source. The book of Hebrews, it's the book in the New Testament, begins like this. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Every time God reveals himself to someone, every time he gives the gift of a second chance, it points to and finds its yes in Jesus Christ. Jesus rescued us from the pit when we were down and out. Jesus took the judgment upon himself at the cross, the, the place where God's love and God's wrath collide, the cross. Where they see that his love and his wrath are two sides of the same coin. And Jesus is the only reason, the only reason why God relents from bringing disaster upon us. For by his blood, we are healed. This is the grace that God works in his people. This is the second chance and the third chance and the fourth chance he places before his people. And then he works through them to reach others. So our God is a God of second chances. And that won't always be available, but it is today. And you can repent and believe and see God work in you because salvation belongs to the Lord and today is the day of salvation. Let's pray.